Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about recollection, or my memory serves me far too well. Now everybody's talking about this new decade Like you say the magic numbers Then you just say goodbye to the stupid mistakes you made Oh, my memory serves me far too well No, this isn't going to be an episode focusing on the music of George Michael from the Listen Without Prejudice CD, although Waiting for the Day has a lyric that frankly haunts me to this day because it is all about the concept of recollection. Not to uh, bypass the opportunity to make a shout-out in George Michael's direction, as a pop singer, he's seen both the ups and downs of popularity, and I'm not going to say for one minute that any of those downs were undeserved or any of those ups were overstated. But, you know, even at his lowest moments, uh, I, I had an online conversation where I, I quoted this particular line of dialogue from George Michael, and somebody had pointed out to me that there was a lot of good reasons to dislike George Michael's music. And, uh, you know, a lot of them had to do with, you know, some of the cliches, some of the fact that it's just simply a, you know, a very pre-boy band kind of pop that, that still reflects all the, the negative characteristics of boy band pop, which is not my thing. But I said, you know, the bottom line is, not just this um, Waiting for the Day song that I've quoted there, but the song Heal the Pain from that same album actually is, is to me, a, a very, very strong number, and a song that you're not likely to get off my MP3 player without a fight. So give a little bit of credit to George Michael there. However, that really isn't the topic that I wanted to focus on on this particular, on this particular episode, because although George Michael's lyric does speak to the recollection and speak to that aspect of things in a way that I really like... I'm going to take it just a bit more more broader than that. I have a better than average understanding of the positives and negatives of having a really solid memory. One of the things that separates me from many of my friends and peers is memory. It isn't just that I have a strong recollection of past events, and by now I'm sure that's pretty obvious. I also have a uh, remember things at a greater detail, uh, greater detail than others. In fact, I sometimes recall things that others don't have any memory of whatsoever, except perhaps in a very vague notion of satisfaction or in other cases unfortunately maybe other friends of mine old friends of mine have a vague notion of regret i can't can't help that i want to hit this topic from the perspective of interpersonal relationships and the the trials and burdens perhaps of having a good memory but i also want to lay an undercurrent of of kind of the challenge that it puts to me personally as a christian you see it's a major challenge to the old adage having a great memory really challenges the idea of forgive and forget you know, as a Christian, what does it mean if you really can't forget, or at least not forget very effectively? Well, I'd say that the forgiveness part is the most important part of that old cliche, and for many people, probably the more challenging part of that old cliche. But for me, the hardest thing I have to deal with is putting those memories away. Now, I'm one of those people that, uh, that my family and friends make fun of, because although I sometimes have a hard time remembering some of the very obvious things, I can't remember my age sometimes without 
making a note of what year it is and doing the math. That's not a number that I carry around in the front of my head. I remember one time being in a kind of a, a stressful situation at work. This was back when I was in stores. And you have one of those visits, not just from the, uh, from the supervisor you report to, it's sort of a district level, but you also have that regional vice president guy. So you have your boss's boss is there in the store with you. And, and this guy was a real cantankerous fellow. He had made a note of the uh, forecasting that I'd done and the schedule that I'd written for the next week. And I'd already written a schedule and put it up there that had us being kind of forecasted down for the week. Now, in the record music business, at least back then in the record music business, new releases were all about Tuesday. Tuesday was the day that everything came out, that if you wanted to, to grab the new album by Garth Brooks or Metallica or whatever it was, it was going to be a Tuesday morning. And you'd receive all the product for that shipment. Sometimes even Monday in the morning, uh, Monday in the afternoon, or even the evening, uh, which gave you a pretty tight time frame in terms of getting that product ready, getting it uh, brought in, unboxed, price stickered, um, signs made if you need to make signs if it's a brand new artist that doesn't already have a release present in your alphabet. So all that work is going on. But on this particular Tuesday, the, the upcoming Tuesday, it was going to be a bad week. You could just tell the week before, maybe we had a, a really strong set of releases, but this particular week, when you compare this year to the year before, kind of a this year, last year comparison, it wasn't going to be a very, a very strong showing. And so I forecasted myself down. I'd reduce the number of hours I had on the sales floor. And rather than responding, as I might have hoped, to the fact that I was keeping close tabs on the budget, not trying to bring a lot of extra help or an extra cashier in on a day that we weren't really going to be having an unusual amount of traffic in the store, what my boss's boss noticed was that I'd forecasted the store down, that my overall sales plan for the week was lower. And he was really annoyed by the fact that it was, you know, it was a significant amount. I was like probably 30% less sales planned for that week than the previous year at the same time frame. I tell the story because when he noticed this, he turned to me and very, very aggressively, you know, sort of pointedly asked me, how much money do you make? How much am I paying you? And I'm telling you what, if Answering that question quickly and accurately was the difference between having a job and losing a job. He would have had to fire me because I could not come up with the number of how much money I was making to save my life. Now, part of it was just nerves. I was nervous. I was put on the spot. But, you know, I, I couldn't come up with a, how much am I making an hour. I couldn't come up with what my weekly wage was. I couldn't have named an annual figure. I had, I had nothing. And uh, it's that sort of thing where my memory does sort of fail me, that things that probably a lot of people just always know. You know, how much do you make? Uh, at your job, what's your what's your wage, either on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, whatever it is? How old are you? Things like that that you would expect somebody to remember. And in this respect, I don't think my memory does serve me all that well. But when it comes to other things, I can often remember um, dates, hours, days of the week, locations, things like that, much much better than a lot of people that I know. And at one point in time, I actually thought. Well, this wouldn't be a big deal if I can recall a few old friends that I have, haven't seen and, and may not see again. Uh, I could probably jot down a few memories and just kind of preserve some of these, these ideas bouncing around in my head. And what I found was, first off, it wasn't a problem to come up with uh, 40 or more names of people that I had important memories about. That surprised me. I've always felt like with uh, personal friendships that you can't have too many of those, that there's a certain point where you can't stretch yourself that much. And that if you're really deeply invested in a personal relationship, um, you don't necessarily, you can't necessarily do that kind of, of you know, person-to-person -person commitment in the friendship sense with that many people. But you can do it serially. 
So over time, if you say, well, when I was at this school, I had one set of friends, and then we moved to a different neighborhood, I picked up a different set of friends, then, of course, in college, and then when you bounce around from city to city or move from neighborhood to neighborhood. You know, so in some ways, I was able—I was able to come up with more names of people that I had significant and important memories about. But then, what also surprised me is when I started putting pen to paper or fingers to keyboard and typing out some of these thoughts, I was shocked by the the length, the detail, the number of stories, the amount of stuff that just when I said, "Okay, I want to, I want to, I want to write all this down, commit some sacred history to a document." then it really just sort of struck me that, man, there is more here than I even knew. And enough so that if a friend of mine came out of the woodwork somewhere and, and made some quick quip about something like, you know what, if you're, if you're going to throw a beer bottle out of the window because you, know, you don't want your parents or the police or anybody to know that you've been drinking a beer in the backseat of the car, uh, roll down the window first. Well, I knew exactly what he meant when he said that. Enough to the extent that I was almost able, it could have been able, to come back with the one-liner and the quip to say, yes, and don't use hand lotion as mouthwash. It might cover the beer, but it's, it's actually a really bad idea. Um, because both of those things are memories that I have in my, in my head something like, I don't know, 20 years later. So in that respect, my memory serves me far too well because a lot of the things that I've got a recollection of you know, really aren't, aren't all that important, perhaps, at the end of the day. So when it comes to the bad memories, I've got some things I'm wrestling with as a Christian in terms of what does it mean to forgive and forget when the forget part is a, is a big challenge. And when it comes to good memories, what does it mean to carry the burden of knowing that maybe you remember some things about your relationship with an individual where that person doesn't have that memory anymore. And what should be a common bond between the two of you, like you know, the time that we went to that conference together, um, you've got it, but they don't have it. Now, this is one of the sort of you know, concepts I had for an episode, for a show, from the very beginning, putting pen to paper and saying, hey, at some point, once you've gotten a ways down the line and you've hit some of the key issues in religion and issues in politics, and you've at least dabbled enough in sex, drugs, and rock and roll to, to establish what the show's about, at some point you almost have to, to put out a really personal program and say, hey, what's it like to deal with this, um, this problem of having a great memory? Because um, the memory's serving me well. I've got, I've got things that I can recall going all the way back to elementary school. I've got stories I can share. Some of them are relevant again, and some of them have always been relevant uh, you know, when it comes to things uh, that we think about from being significant from a decade's perspective, uh, the turbulent 60s, um, sexual revolution, all those sort of things. I've got a unique perspective from where I stood in history at the time. But then I also have this other issue that, to me, there is genuinely an underlying sadness to say, hey, you know what, right now, because of the way the Internet functions, because of the way I interact with others, i got some really solid relationships with people that I may never, ever meet. And, and that's a bit of a burden, you know, especially when things aren't going well, when somebody, when they lose their mom, when they lose their dad, when, um, when a relationship falls apart, when the kind of things that you would like to be there for somebody. And I know I can't be there because I've almost, I've, I've really truly in this, in the sense of that one relationship, I've never been there. But also when you look back into the past and you say, you know what, um, I've got a couple of people in my life that I've made commitments to that I've said in person or, or said in writing, I'm there for you. I'm not going to forget you. I will, I will walk with our, with our memory for the rest of my days. And I've meant that. 
but you don't know how much, what does it mean for me to mean that sincerely if the other person interpreted it as just something you say? What does it mean for that to be true for me but not true for the other person? And part of the reason that I'm struggling with this a little bit and part of the reason that I'm dealing face-to-face with it is not just the inherently anonymous nature of the internet when you when you reach out and meet some new people and share some experiences, even just online sort of experiences, but also what does it mean when for the first time, after a long period of resistance, a long period of drawing a line in the sand and say, saying, that's not for me from a social media perspective, you sign up for Facebook. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the library, Books You Should Read is coming back to simplysyndicated.com, this time with a little bit of a different approach, but still fueled by you. So send in your reviews of books you love or even books you don't love. We'd like to hear them all. Meanwhile, I'll be hosting every week. My name is Kennedy, and I'll be talking to you very soon. I mentioned a couple of months ago that I was reluctant to sign up for Facebook, even though doing so would give me the ability to support a friend of mine in England and his pop, sort of pop rock music career by casting a vote for him in a music competition in London. And I finally just broke down and said, you know, I, I don't have a choice. I, I see that he's not necessarily in first place here. Some weeks he's in first place, some weeks he's in second place. This competition is going to be really close. And if I want to put my money where my mouth is, if I'm serious that, that this guy's made the most exciting CD I've heard in a long time, and maybe it's because I know him, maybe it's just because of the music, it's hard to untangle all of that. But if I'm serious about it, he needs another vote. He maybe, maybe even needs more than one other vote, but he needs, he needs my other vote. So I'd already gone online to the website of the music competition and voted. But if you were a member of Facebook, you had the ability to friend the competition and go into the poll and vote that way as well. So I did it. And what happens when you enter into the realm of Facebook is, I could have, to be honest, gone in, signed up, voted, and essentially left that account inactive. But the reality is, there's programs out there I love. I've mentioned them to you before. There's shows that I, I really, really get a lot from. Uh, the Take Him With You podcast by Rick Moyer, Dan Carlin's shows, both uh, Hardcore History and, for me especially, Common Sense, and almost all the, all the programs on the network simply syndicated. And Facebook gives you the opportunity to go out and, and click on those programs and say, I like those programs. And by liking those programs, the, the basically what I would call the front page of Facebook gives you updates when there's new episodes out. Um, if there's a hiatus, you might... They might put a posting on their page for the show explaining what's going on, why that maybe you're not going to get an episode for a week or two. So there's good things about it. The other thing that it brings you, though, is face-to-face with what I'm going to call worlds colliding. There's essentially three worlds that I perceive in this situation, and I don't think the, the, uh, the factor of three is a mistake. I think that there's, not, there's something inherently true about that. I've mentioned before... Uh, not on this program, but on another one, that I think that there's a significance in threes. That if you look to the perspective of how people live their lives, most people live their lives in sort of three main avenues. You have the uh, your work life, your home life, and the other thing. 
Now, for me, the other thing is the church. But for some people, the other thing is not the church at all. For some people, the other thing is the club scene. It's their band. Um, it's, you know, it's something else. It, it could be a hobby. But, you know, for me, it, the three things are, are work and home and church. And if those three things are all going well at the same time, you will be as happy and satisfied as a human being as you can possibly get during your time on this planet. If any one or even two of those things are going badly, you can tend to find a lot of refuge in the other so that you're going, you're going to be okay. You can draw strength from work to get you through a difficult time at home. You can draw strength from you know, church to get you through difficult times at work. Um, if you're lucky, you have the strength at home at all times to get you through whatever happens in the other avenues, but you can't control that. Things like people's health, um, for example, a health problem at home or an unexpected death in the family, it doesn't have to be that you have a relationship issue. It could, it could just be that you have genuine sadness to deal with. So it's like that idea of having the three things. Well, from this world colliding perspective, what are the three things that I'm dealing with? Well, I'm dealing first off with you know all, all three of those aspects I just talked about are, are sort of what we might call a real world, where you've got... Um, people you're directly interacting with, whether it be a church, home, or work, or commuting between all those places, the quote-unquote places I live, the, the human experience, the real world. The other thing is those people that I interact with online. Programs like this and comments back to the programs like this, and by the way, I do intend um, for the next program, the very next program, to respond to commentary and questions and points that have been raised. So if you have any thoughts... Uh, HTTP colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com has a place where you can comment directly into any previous episode of this show, as well as uh, IC underscore Greg at hotmail dot com. I've received some email that I'll be responding to as well. So there's that whole that whole um, online community sort of thing where if you interact with people who host some of these other shows, if, if you have an email exchange with Dan Carlin, if you if you read on an almost daily basis what's going on with uh, the hosts of shows like Richard and Allison's Super Happy Fun Time, you get a sense of what's going on, and that's another level of real. Some of these people live in places as far away as Hong Kong or as nearby, quote-unquote nearby, as Canada. You're still, in my case, as an American, crossing a major border to get over there, but you still might meet some of them. But others, it doesn't seem like there's any opportunity on the immediate horizon for me to um, meet somebody in a place like New Zealand or, or even England. It, it doesn't seem like it's going to be something that could happen, or if it does happen, it might be a one-off, a one-and-done. So you've got that level of real, where the time frame is, is, is current. The commonality is that it's, it's now. And then this other thing is everything from the past, all the memory, the recollection, as I'm going to, as I'm going to call it during this show, and the interesting thing about the recollection is <clears throat> the recollection has a connection to the current, has a, collect, a, a connection to the real world in that those people tend to be people that were in the real world when I lived in those other places. So um, I knew those people when I lived in, in you know, other states and other cities. And the memory is the difference. The memory is that the time is, is different now. I've changed locations, but I've changed locations over time. So I've made both a change in time, in time and place, not just place. The connection to the unreal world is that the, uh, you know, the online world is because of Facebook, I'm more likely to interact with these people or get a glimpse into where they are now and how things are going now. 
in a manner that's not at all unlike what I do know about people that I've only met once, twice, or maybe never, may never meet. So there's this interesting thing where if you look at the list of, no, well, two things. If you look at the list of likes that I've got, I've got likes that connect me to other people who like the same stuff. Well, we listen to the same podcasts, we enjoy the same music, we watch the same TV shows, things of that nature. But it also connects both of us with a whole bunch of people that we don't even know in an internet cyberspace perspective because we've never had any interaction with them at all. But from a Facebook perspective, they also like the things that we like. We just we wouldn't have had any reason to know that otherwise. But the bigger one is the friendship list. So if you look at the friend list that I've accumulated just because of, you know, I figured if I'm going to sign up for this thing and vote for Craig, which I did, I immediately voted for Craig Bevan. By the way, his website is called Craig Bevan Music, www.craigbevanmusic.com. No underscores, all scrunched together, craigbevanmusic.com. I went on immediately and voted for Craig, but, you know, Facebook has that way of saying, hey, you know what? You may know this person, you may know that person. People who over time have sent me emails asking me to sign up for Facebook so that they can see pictures of the kids or, you know, reminisce about the old days or just get a, get a glimpse of whether I, you know, I look the same or do I have the same values or what have you. All the things that you know, constitute that realm of likes on Facebook. So if you look at that list of friends, again... You sort of see this pattern. I'm going to call it a pattern of threes. It's a little more complex than that. But you have, again, the people that I communicate with online now, the people who I interact with at homework or church now, and the people from my past. And these worlds don't necessarily fit very cleanly together. You know, it, it sort of dawns on you when you when you go and meet some people that you've, you've interacted with online and that you, know, you listen to their show, they listen to your show, you, you, you've hit it off from that perspective. It's always kind of a little bit awkward for the first few minutes where, yeah, this looks just like the person's picture and it sounds like this person. I've, I'm absolutely convinced I have total confidence that this is the person that I've been communicating with for months or years even. But it's a little bit weird when you're there in the flesh. There's enough different. I mean, I'm probably, you know, maybe a little bit bigger guy than people expect. Um, I've met some friends who I thought were maybe a little bit smaller than I would expect. Maybe not as tall, maybe much more thin, what have you. And you just have to kind of get over that burden where, unlike somebody that you, uh, you see before you meet, like a coworker or somebody who joins your church, it's a little bit of a different dynamic. But you also have the fact that I know that some of those people have values that I think are very strong and in their own way very positive, but also very different from the values of people who are in my family and the values of people that I, you know, I interact with in church. So you already have probably everybody can understand the, the collision of saying, you know, what am I like at work versus what am I like at home uh, versus what am I like at church? And I'd be very surprised if anybody honestly felt like those were always the same. You're the same person in all three of those situations. There's got to be some differences where at home, if you're a parent, there's a certain amount of authority that you really have to exercise over the way that your kids behave and the, the way your kids learn and grow and develop. Um, you're probably not going to exercise that authority over people at work, even if you are in a supervisory position. It's going to be a different kind of authority. And in another social group, whether that be a church or a rock band or a jazz band or whatever it is, that other thing in your world 
um, you probably don't have the same kind of authority there either. And even if you did, again, I bet it would be a completely different exercise of it. So in addition to that whole idea that, well, okay, now I've got um, you know my family members are on there, pictures of the nephews, all that sort of stuff is there, uh, and niece. Uh, it's also there lined up side by side with people that I work with, people that our common interest is the sports, the sport teams we follow, or people that I'm online with because of our shared faith. You layer in both the people that they'll never meet because I may never meet them and the people from my past, and it just gets interesting. Because again, new, new memories that are being forged, memories that are part of a continuum that, that I don't even really think of it as being making memories. You know, in, in the terms of your family life, you know you're making memories every day, but you don't really think about it. You're just, you know, you're, you're in the family. But when the people from the past show up, that can be very interesting, and I, I've got to be honest. I've seen some names that uh, Facebook will recommend. They'll do their little thing, and they'll see who you're friends with and who other people who share common friends with you are, and if there's enough of a link there, they'll, they may send you the occasional note or whatever saying, here's some people that you might know or what have you. And sometimes I look at those people, and it's very humorous because, yeah, I don't know any of them. You know, you think about it. The odds are with you that there's enough friends of my friends that I've never met that that makes sense. But the other thing is there's a lot of people in there I do know. And sometimes it's an interesting reaction to say, wow, I really view myself as having quite a powerful memory. And what does it say about me or what does it say about the other person if I don't really remember them very well? Uh, I tend to think that probably says something bad about me, something shallow, something um, where I, I uh, misplace the importance I put on events and therefore have blind spots. But on the other hand, there's some people that I see that I remember quite clearly. And sometimes there's a reaction to say, you know what? Maybe I don't want to be face-to-face with some of those memories. But then there's other people where I see them and, and they either send me an invitation or I, even though it's not something I really do very habitually, I try to not be aggressive at going out and quote-unquote finding people and friending people. There are sometimes where you just you see a name, you make a connection, and you, just says, you, you, you click that button and you say, yes, I know you and I want to, I want to say hello. I want to bring up some of those memories. So that's kind of what I'm dealing with. I got this swirling stuff in my head where I'm kind of dealing with something like four decades worth of people that I've known. And it's weird to know, hey, you know what? Maybe in some cases, it's not as bad as 30 years. But even if it's 20 years, 15 years, 25 years, whatever the number is, that's an awful lot of water under the bridge. It's the old saying that you really only need about about an inch of standing water and you could drown to death if you... If you didn't have sufficient body control, if you were inebriated or whatever, you don't. it doesn't take a lot of water. You don't have to be completely submerged in water to get enough water in your lungs and, and drown to death. But the amount of water under the bridge after a couple of decades have gone by is more than enough water to drown a dinosaur. And so I look at that and I think, wow, that's interesting. And it hits me in two ways. Because again, there's a certain amount of sadness that I feel if I have vivid, powerful, positive recollections of something. And the other person doesn't remember any of it. But I also worry about, am I right about how clearly I remember things? What if somebody else has a clear, powerful recollection of things that we have done together and I don't recall any of it? Um, that would really challenge this idea that I've, I've got a strong enough memory to even justify doing, doing a show like this one. Or, probably the worst thing of all, what if my clear recollection of what happened on that particular Friday night in that particular house with that particular set of friends 
comes head to head in a collision with somebody who remembers the same time and the same place and the same event in a completely different way. On some level, got to be honest, I find that more than just a little bit terrifying. Because even though I might, might be whining a little bit in this particular show, my memory serves me far too well. And I don't deal with it very well when it fails me. To quote George Michael again, just very briefly, first line in the stanza of the song Waiting for the Day. So every day I see you in some other face. They crack a smile, talk a while, and try to take your place. I don't like that. And I don't like that because my memory serves me far too well. And I don't want anything to compromise the power of these kinds of recollections. To anyone who might have thought that this would have been an excellent place to cite George Michael as a different drummer, I apologize. Not going to happen. But I did really try on a lot of different ideas here about who the right different drummer would be for concepts of recollection. And for many months, William Faulkner's name was penciled right in this spot because I'm a huge fan of the novel The Sound and the Fury and a lot of his other works. And memory is a really crucial part of the way he does storytelling. It has a lot to do with why he is such an award-winning author. But instead... I've made a substitution to a film director that I think has all the same quality of credentials and perhaps is somebody that you know a lot of us are less familiar with because he's French and did almost all of his work in France. Our different drummer is film director Alain René. Alain René is a unique place among famous filmmakers for the role that memory plays in his film. Both as a member and as an outsider to the French New Wave, his film credits include Night in Fog, Hiroshima Mon Amour, Last Year at Marion Bad, and Mon Uncle d'Amérique. And that is not even an exhaustive list of his important films, but I'm focusing on them because of the way the memory functions in those stories, each one of which was written by a different author. <clears throat> I've seen two or three of the uh, documentary shorts made by René, and perhaps the most famous of all is Night and Fog, which is his account of Nazi concentration camps using footage shot in part by allies who liberated those camps. So you actually get to see the status of not only the victims, those who died in those conditions, but also the victims of those who were survivors at the time, done so with a voiceover narration that is as confrontational in word as the otherwise beautiful photography is in image. And uh, Night in Fog, again, not a, doesn't ask a huge investment of time, I'm not sure from memory how long it is, but 10 or 20 minutes is certainly the ballpark. And to be honest with you, that's about as much live Holocaust footage as it even makes sense to try to, uh, I guess, endure is the word that I would put to it. Um, so he established his career early on with some incredibly important films. His other documentary shorts, though, had a lot of humor to them with more of a light touch. But when it came to the beginning of his uh, theatrical, um, dramatic filmmaking career, he hit the world with two incredibly serious films right off the bat. One written by Marguerite Duras, dealing with nothing less than the aftermath of Hiroshima in Hiroshima Mon Amour. And the other, written by Alain Robbrier, uh, the French New Wave author, um, which dealt more directly with memory than almost any film I've ever seen in last year at Marienbad. Later on, My Uncle, America, my, my Uncle in America 
dealt with um, some psychological theories, some sociological human conditioning theories, but also by playing in the idea that humans can be conditioned to react in certain ways to certain types of stimulus, there's a certain uh, reflexive type of memory at place in that particular story as well. Now, of all the movies I've mentioned, the My Uncle in America is the least of these. It does have some, you know, some touching moments and places, but it's also a little bit heavy-handed. Uh, one moment of him demonstrating how uh, rats can be conditioned to negotiate a maze actually reshoots a uh, domestic drama situation where he replaces the actor and actress with, you know, human-sized rats dressed up in business suits. Very heavy-handed. Some people have reacted negatively to the film last year at Marion Bad. They consider it to be very pretentious and over-the-top. I think that it works as a surrealist film. And if you consider that the entire storytelling is, is an act of memory, um, then I think that the fact that it's got that certain lyrical quality to it, that it has an otherworldly sense of time and place, it really does work. And the cinematography by Sasha Vierney is fantastically beautiful. But even the flashback scenes in Hiroshima Mon Amour have an incredible amount of sensitivity to memory. Not just the memory of someone who survived Hiroshima, but also the memory of somebody who, as a perhaps a teenage girl during the German occupation of France in World War II, had to survive that situation as well, and what it means to be shunned if you develop a relationship with somebody who is the occupier and therefore the enemy. And um, my memory of Hiroshima Monomore is not clear and vivid. It's been many years since I've seen it. But I do recall really thinking that it was a great artistic achievement and perhaps in some ways a larger scale artistic achievement than last year at Marienbad. Last year at Marienbad is the one that impressed me most, though, because by nature I am a bit of a surrealist. Enjoying films by film directors like Louis Benwell and Terry Gilliam makes uh, this particular film by Alain René a natural for me. But also I like the way it handled memory, because the essential plot, to the degree there is a plot, is that a man confronts a woman at a spa during a resort trip and asks her to run away with him as she promised she would when they met uh, last year at a different resort. So this year they're not at Marion Bad, they're somewhere else, um, may not even be named, but his allegation is that the previous year they met, they had a tryst, and they agreed that if they were to find each other again this year, they would run off together. And not to spoiler anything, but my impression of the film is that more is going on here in the storytelling and that the memory has a lot of regret to it. <clears throat> that either there really was something that happened last year at Marion Bad or Frederick's Bad, and her sense of guilt about what happened in that encounter is so overwhelmingly powerful that she's haunted by the memory of it, or perhaps it's the other way around and it is his memory of, of an opportunity lost or, you know... Uh, you know, a one-night stand that turned out to be more to him than he meant. There's lots of ways of looking at it. I have a particular point of view, but it's a particular point of view that I won't share because to do so means that I would have to, to spoil elements of the show. So when I think of these concepts of what it means to remember things and to remember them perhaps differently than someone else and how to reconcile that and how to hold on to that and whether that, you know, that sense of loss and regret can still in its own way be beautiful, it's only natural for me to remember the filmmaking of Alain René and particularly his adaptation of Rob Grier's work last year at Marion Bad, because I'm not 100% sure I've seen memory put on the screen any better than that. And if you see 
nothing else from this particular director to sample into somebody who was making films in France in the 1950s and 60s at the highest possible level. I recommend Night in Fog, Hiroshima Mon Amour, but in its own weird way, especially last year at Marianne Bad. I believe on some level I'm actually underselling these recollections from the past and the somewhat ghost-like reaction that I can have to these, to these encounters. Because it's not just true that I have a real world, a cyber world, and a past life. It's also that, in, especially in the past life, the three things were there as well. There was some element of home and church and work in all those other cities that I lived in, or some other sort of you know, school and community and church. Some some element where you could have three different friends reach out to you, send you a message, or or uh, quote unquote friend you all in the same day, and have three completely different responses because one of them is an ex coworker or an ex employee, and the other one is somebody from college or all the way back to the distant part of childhood, and maybe another one was perhaps a more intense personal relationship, whether that be the kind of blood brothers sort of relationship between two guys or whether it be a relationship that is more of a sacred friendship. And it's in that area of sacred friendship that I probably have some explaining to do, and I'm going to hold that explanation to another time. But if you imagine you know, the kind of brother-sister relationship or um, the kind of relationship between you know, a, a mentor and student or a college roommate sort of a thing, there's something there that is a little bit more powerful than just, hey, somebody I knew way back when. And I actually have a little bit of concern over whether I'm prepared emotionally to deal with what it might mean to try to bridge those sorts of gaps. Because on the one hand, I've told those people, I will remember you always. There's experiences we've shared I'm not going to forget. There's bullets we've dodged that I'm going to continue to be thankful for. But what does it mean to have always out there as a completely abstract concept? And then to have some sort of social networking tool like like uh, Facebook, or even something else like a LinkedIn, bring you face-to-face with that. I also have a sense that maybe some of these old friends have the same kind of thoughts in their head that I do. After all, at one point in time, we shared a great deal in common with each other in terms of our, our experiences and our perspectives. Maybe, maybe that's the reason why there are some people who I haven't heard from yet. The same thing that stops me from being so bold is to say, hey, you ought to remember me. I want to resume our relationship through something like Facebook. Maybe they're in the same boat saying, hang on a second, maybe I don't want to be that bold either. So is there a place there where I can get into my comfort zone? Is there something available to me that makes this all still feel good? Yeah, there really is. Before I go there, though, first I want to thank you for listening to this inappropriate conversation. It's one that really doesn't hit any of the kind of you know, mission statements of the show. There's no real politics here. Um, quasi-religious at best. I didn't actually address the issue of that line between what it means to forgive if you really can't forget the way you should. But I think I needed this one to be more personal. I also want to thank uh, Kevin McLeod for the music that I use as the theme song and for the bumpers for the different drummer program. Uh, I really appreciate the, the music that he has made available. However, the theme that I want to play to take us out today It doesn't come from the traditional theme of the show. I want to play us out today to a song off the Craig Bevan CD, I Think We've Made It. 
it's the last song on the disc. And when I wrote to him and asked him about it, I said, hey, I really would like for you to you know, be okay to obtain permission to put this song on an upcoming show. His first response was, wow, that one? That one actually means a lot to me. Um, it's a very personal song. As you can tell by the lyrics, I mean, it was obvious to me it was a very personal song. And he was a, he, he wanted to take some time to get comfortable with the idea that I might have some thoughts on it or I might try to speak to it. But I'm telling you, I speak to it with not only the highest level of respect for the emotions that are there, that feeling of still being always connected to somebody that you've got a pretty good conviction you're not going to see again, that somehow, due to time or geography, it's, it's over in that sense. And particularly if you think of the pre-internet days when we, we weren't ever thinking really that you'd jump online and, and link up on LinkedIn with somebody. Before all that time, you really were. When you, when you packed up your belongings and moved several states away to the other side of the country for a job opportunity, you were kind of saying goodbye to people in a quasi-forever way. But in addition to being goodbye forever, there's also this always there forever thing. And, and that's what Craig's song talks about. It talks about this concept that, you know, I, I know I'm never going to see you again, but everything I've said is true. And I believe that everything you've said is true and that I will hold you in my memory always. And I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't be the guy I am today if it weren't for you. And there's an eternal quality to that. I honestly, as a Christian, don't know how people who don't have a personal relationship with God reconcile this notion of, of eternal belief. Because I believe all of us as humans feel like we've got a connection to somebody that has gone far enough back in time that we know that for the rest of our, at least our earthly life, that relationship will carry forward. If only in our memory, it'll carry forward. As a Christian, I believe it's a bigger deal than that, that it's going to carry eternally forward past this lifetime and get you to those places where Christians talk about seeing somebody again in paradise. Um, but Craig Bevan's song speaks to it in that in the moment the moment that I'm in actually right now, where it's saying, no, I'm still on this planet. I'm here, and maybe you're not. Or we're very, very far away, and there's some sort of a cultural divide or some sort of a, of a breakdown in the relationship, or perhaps a death. Something has severed that, and it's important for me to let you know that I remember. I have a recollection, and that recollection is captured for me perfectly in Bevan's song, Always. Thanks for listening. Jokes, be singing all my songs always, always. I know your arms are around me, and I feel that you're still with me.
so powerful From the essence of you in me The keys are lifting me higher Touch this sky if it weren't for your heart. Can never reach so high, never get so far. I owe this one to you, you're forever in my soul. 